Hello and welcome to the ISTC monthly podcast where you can keep up to date with what's going on at the ISTC and in technical communications in the UK and globally. The ISTC is the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators and our members work to make scientific and technical information more accessible. I'm Imogen Craigmile, your host. I'm a member of the ISTC and a technical author working in the logistics software industry. It's a brand new year and with that comes a brand new episode. This month, I spoke with Jerry Leonidas, a professor of typography at Reading University. Our talk covered topics ranging from the daily duties of a professor to the importance of fonts and styling for consumer confidence. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. To get the ball rolling, I asked Jerry to tell me about his job as a professor of typography. I, I often get asked this because typography is not a discipline that people associate conventionally with an academic environment. However, I have the privilege of working at the University of Reading where uh, academic typography, let's say, has been in place for a bit over 50 years. Uh, indeed, we were the first place where typography was practiced in an academic environment, which means in a research-intensive environment. So we are something of a pioneer in this respect, both at a national level and globally. Now, typography can be defined simply as the, the means of arranging and uh, orchestrating people's interactions with texts. And text is always at the heart of it. Uh, and there are different pathways into it. Some people come to it through design, some people come to it through languages, translation, editing, proofreading, uh, but also the more functional elements of design that might have to do with, for example, wayfinding or form filling and so on. Uh -huh. So typography is something that we might come into contact with if we're reading a novel, but also when we're doing a tax return. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, it is no surprise uh, for anyone that this field has accelerated in development uh, in recent years as we have migrated onto hybrid documents, things that might exist both in on paper and in digital forms or entirely digital modes of interaction, especially transactional documents, we would call them, things like uh, applications or forms online that change their behavior depending on our uh, input and so on. And what is interesting about all of these environments is that text is always there. Even if we think of social media, which we might think of as a very visually rich environment, text is always there to suggest the interface elements, the comments that people are making, conversational elements, annotation, and so on. So we are seeing an almost exponential growth of the amount of text that we come into contact with in ways that are often quite different from the traditional forms of arranging text, which were limited by the technology of putting ink on paper. Uh, so there is quite a, a strong need to understand how texts need to be arranged or how do we need to prepare people for designing uh, different kinds of documents. And I use documents in a very wide area so that users can engage with them. And that is where the research element comes into it, of asking questions about how do documents change and so on. I can think of a very simple example because you sent me a Word document mm -hmm. from one operating system to another operating system. I might look at it also on my phone or a tablet or my desktop or print it out. And all of these things on one level are the same document because the content is uh, the same in terms of a strict uh, count of characters, interaction and so on. Uh, 
so a lot of my my life uh, no I'm going to flatter myself and say a lot of my life is uh, <laughs> pondering these questions a huge amount of my life is sitting in meetings and answering emails I have to be honest about this uh, but I work mostly with postgraduate and researchers who ask these kind of questions and increasingly ask them with a global perspective. So a lot of the discussions that have to do with uh, diversity inclusion uh, in areas that we don't necessarily think as connected to documents are very much the bread and butter of my domain because we are thinking how access to documents or the ability to write, compose, distribute documents uh, influence inclusion, influence identity, influence people's ability to express themselves or again are excluded from this because of um, either technological or political factors. Uh, so I am quite privileged in a way because I'm working with people who are interested in what they're doing. Uh, they're often at the forefront of developing some solutions and at the same time uh, with tools that allow us to appreciate a, a more a deeper historical context uh, because the way we interact with texts has very deep roots in traditional typography and also technological solutions that have been around for centuries so you can't do that part of you can't write out that part of uh, of history that's fascinating um with everything that you've just told me and, and you mentioned that you spend a lot of your time, sadly, in meetings and um, things like that. Do you enjoy working in academia or do you sometimes miss working in the field? Um, how did you become a professor? Uh, I started working professionally as, uh, as an editor, a typesetter, proofreader. So I had an engagement with language and my way into typography was one through love of language. In a sense, I wanted to see how this visible language appear on paper at the time. I'm of a generation that I grew up entirely with paper resources. So I was really keen to understand how this happens. That brought me into understanding of different ways of printing, uh, different for publishing, for newspapers, uh, books, and so on. And through that slowly, I grew to be fascinated with this interplay of language, of production, of technology, in a very commercial world also because there's always a client in a way with a budget and so on that needs to produce something in typography. Mm -hmm. So I had a practical background. Um, my studies were in business administration and journalism. So I had that kind of uh, set of skills in a way. So I came into typography as a postgraduate. Uh, I, I was, I have to say, extremely lucky because I arrived to the UK in 1994, which was then when the internet was beginning to be a thing yeah and everybody knew it was going to be something but nobody knew what so the market was changing rapidly education was adapting very quickly to new ways of working so if you were a relatively young person with an interest in new ways of thinking and perhaps some flexibility in your work it was a good place to be so i i sort of rode my career rode this wave of the digitization of higher education uh, having said that myself and a lot of my colleagues also maintain a practice uh, element in our work i'm at the university four days a week so i keep a day a week for uh, my own private work 
Uh, now, in my stage, this has to do more with consultancy companies or professionals who need to understand how to use texts globally hmm. or how to make uh, connections between the resources they need, the markets, uh, agents that can help them and so on. So facilitating mostly connection between professionals who offer digital services and companies. So that key allows me to keep a sense of what goes on. Uh, Another part of my professional life has a lot to do with support of larger corporations that work on digital resources like Adobe, Microsoft and so on in supporting specific areas of their development uh, according to my expertise. So in a sense, if you've sent me a Word document, the Word document relies on fonts doing things in a predictable manner mm. uh, regardless of what system or laptop or device you open that document on and that requires quite a lot of work so that these fonts all work say, seamlessly across uh, environments. Uh, you can almost think of fonts as the plumbing <laughs> of uh, our textual communication Yeah. Uh, and if I look at any interface on my laptop right now there's dozens of fonts that might be the menu items, might be the content you sent me, might be interaction elements, or even be symbols uh, that are essentially packaged as fonts. Yeah, I always think it's fascinating. So just take, for instance, go to meeting. There's like the little, I've got like a little settings, like a little cog, mm. and I know that that means settings, but mm. I don't know how I know that. And is that an icon? Is it, a, is that part of fonts? Well, that's actually a very good question because on a technical level, it might well be embedded into the system as a font. It's a very economical way of uh, shifting uh, little symbolic elements. Uh, and it could also be a font in the sense that it might be designed so that it fits in terms of contrast, size, and so on with the letters that go around it. Now, the interesting question you raised is you said how do I know its settings and that points us to the habits we form during our interactions with text where we might start building habits because a few times we saw that oh the little gear is settings and then we can transfer this image across different environments that we're working in or the three horizontal lines are a menu item that is something that has happened in the last 15 years which didn't exist as a symbol earlier uh, so we, since we train ourselves to read things that are representational or abstract in specific ways in the context we work in and that would include the shapes say an X for closing uh, but also colors patterns combinations and so on does that tie in a bit with branding as well a certain font um, is recognizable as a certain brand. I, I, I think you mentioned social media. So something like Facebook, I know, will always be the same font and it'll always be blue and mm. white. Absolutely. Uh, so especially as brands become more dematerialized, they are not any more physical objects that have material properties that we can understand through the size, their heft, the weight, the texture. They are all appearing as pixels that light up on a screen. The only thing that survives across different implementations of the brand really is the typography. So the color palette and the way the type is used in terms of spacing and the style of the typefaces. So increasingly brands resort to developing their own custom typefaces that will have the right kind of weight, contrast, width combinations to work for their interfaces or 
or texts and may include very well a lot of symbols, things like arrows, uh, interaction elements and so on, so that then you will get a consistent and trustworthy interaction, whether you're looking at your social media channel on a phone or on a tablet or a device and so on. We can think about this more widely that if I am interacting, for example, with my bank now mostly through my phone, uh, the consistency of the interaction and the typographic consistency is element is an element of trust. Hmm. So if things don't line up or don't work very well, or I see that you know the uh, the OK button on my phone uh, clashes with the uh, the balance of my bank account, and I think that's not very well developed. That hasn't had attention to detail. Have they also not paid the same kind of attention to the security? Yeah. Of the application. Uh, so the quality of the interaction at the typographic level ties in a lot to the relationship of the brand with the user. Of course, from the technical writing side, it uh, it's no surprise that it's the same kind of attention that you use to the vocabulary that is used, the expressions that are used, and so on. So the same way you would have a very clear house style for the language that you use, you would also have one for the typography. Well, that, that also is equivalent with what language professionals do. In, in a sense, if a paragraph is well written and well structured, it answers clearly what it needs to be doing, then perhaps the reader might not pay too much attention to it. That's true, yeah. It does the job well and it flows. Whereas if something is badly written, it uses the wrong vocabulary, made the syntax is all over the place, then the reader will go, hold on, I cannot actually process this. I don't understand what should I do? Should I sort of go on with the transaction? Should I not? Am I secure in proceeding with this decision or not? So it is part of the network of supporting decisions and interactions. You need to have clear language is structured according to certain uh, ways of thinking about this, about some standards. And also you want the typography that will convey that language appropriately. And the appropriately changes depending on the context. It's you write differently if you're writing a text for on gov.uk for what should I do to insure my vehicle. You might write something differently if you want to invite someone to take part into a survey or if you want to give someone technical information about how to self-service their device. So uh, that kind of sensitivity that the language professional would understand very well uh, is matched also by a sensitivity to the genre of the document by a typographer to arrange uh, text appropriately and uh, choose the right typefaces. Have you ever had to consult with any technical authors? Have any ever come to you? to talk about typography or is it do you think it's just something that's already embedded in our house styles and standards that companies use we have we have had some projects where we have worked uh, with people in developing house styles for yeah. uh, arranging documents that uh, is and at the extreme of which there also uh, this is the development of uh, house styles for reference works you might mm -hmm. think of dictionaries, manuals, and so on, which are extremely precise documents, are often very large. So you have to do the job usually on a sample of the document 
because then there might be some automated system that rolls out the styling throughout the rest of the document. That happens a lot with substantial manuals, substantial reference works, and so on. So there is an interesting uh, challenge in understanding the levels of hierarchy in a document. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of complexities are there in the kind of information? We can think of, do we have cross-referencing elements in a manual, for example? Uh, are there bits of text that will send you to another bits of a bit of text? How is this supported? Do you use superscript or subscript characters? Do you need to have a font that will make them visible enough and so on? What size will these things be displayed? Especially as we've moved on to digital resources and you might have somebody who wants to have the text larger, then how will all of these elements behave? So how do we make things that support the complexity of the text for the use scenarios that they have in the range of devices that they're using is in a, sense, a fascinating challenge and is not trivial. Right, yeah, that makes sense. From researching Jerry before interviewing him, I could tell that a really big part of his job was assisting with postgraduate study. So I really want to ask him if he had a favorite area of research. I, I am passionate about all and I, I have to say, uh, postgraduate supervision is possibly the most exciting part of my work because you work with researchers who tend to be early in their research careers but are very highly driven, very motivated and there is always an element of generating new knowledge. Typography is at the stage where we are understanding much more uh, its role in societies. Uh, we're understanding how and the role of documents are much more than just functional elements. They have a lot to do with identity, with community, with expression. And also, on the other side, they help us understand issues of authority, of agency, and so on. So there is a body of work there that uh, happens especially outside Europe, where people are looking at how documents reveal this kind of relationships. So, uh, if we're talking about recent works that have to do with uh, understanding decolonization through the evidence left behind, we, we understand that historians might look at what has been written, uh, but at the same time, what was available to communities in order to produce their own texts, whether they had access to resources to produce their own texts, or whether things had only to be in manuscript form and so on, is something that enables or doesn't a community. We can see the same thing with uh, support of dictionaries of minority languages. Mm. Uh, even in, in Europe, there are minority languages within major European countries, which might not have dictionaries uh, embedded in computers. Yeah, you know, uh, like the Spanish, it's in Catalan, its own. Yes, yeah. exactly, uh, exactly. And we can see for Basque and so on, there might not be the right kind of support. So in a sense, you have a hierarchy then of texts within the resources we're using. So there's quite a bit of interest in this. Uh, a lot of uh, this has also to do with the idea of identity. So big chunk of our work is this. So if we think of the, the spread of mostly Northwestern cultures through technology, uh, I mentioned Microsoft Office. Now, the engineers developing Office, they're each and every one very good people trying to make good tools. 
Uh, but beyond a certain critical mass of adoption of that tool, it becomes a monolith that unless you can get onto office, you're essentially excluded from business or excluded from interaction. And what office can or cannot do uh, determines whether you can participate in this. So there are uh, important, again, political dimensions, cultural dimensions into the spread of technology and whether there is an open field in allowing people tools to write. We can see very big differences in the support of scripts that are from right to left, like Hebrew, Arabic, for example, which might not be supported to the same level as left to right scripts, simply because of the, the investment that has gone into technology for each script. So then what does this mean? for local authors or content creators are they using compromised tools then their documents begin to look different or maybe they cannot present the documents properly yeah so the interplay of technology and how it enables or hinders uh, certain typographic practices and how preferences change you mentioned earlier that you were familiar with a certain symbol doing things. So we're looking in some of the work at changing preferences according to different demographics. Mm. And we can see throughout many communities, very different attitudes to digital technology and documents, depending on whether our users went to school at what level with access to digital resources. Uh, we have currently in education still, people who would wake up in the morning, pick up a tablet and play a game on a tablet, then go to school, do something at school, then go home and do everything digitally, who have a very different way of interacting with technology, uh, much more direct and uh, maybe have different attitudes about the separation of oral interaction and textual interaction. Yeah. So we see a lot of conversational now interaction with device like Alexa and oh, Google, yeah. yeah, Echo. Mm. Uh, and at the moment, they might be just uh, auxiliary to our daily lives. But to what degree do we see people who are are expecting this kind of interaction in the professional? world then that means they need to work with longer documents then dictation live dictation is something that becomes absorbed into our real documents then we need new interaction tools for these we might need new ways of marking up documents and so on so there's this very interesting uh, set of technologies that are being developed that we don't again know at the moment to what degree they will change the nature of the documents or our communication. What does this then mean to the, the nature of writing and authoring, to the nature of editing texts for consumption by an audience who is used, that are used to only very short samples of text. So uh, I, I'm saying all these things in a neutral environment, but it means that then our typography needs to adapt to this, our way of interacting will need to adapt and so on. Yeah, that worries me. I don't even like reading things online. I still like magazines and newspapers and, and actual books. And it also made me think about where do you think typography will go with virtual reality and augmented reality? Well, we st we will still need text, won't we, to tell us to tell us like what to do or where to go, you know, in virtual reality games or if we're driving our car and that 
become somehow. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't think I'll be out of a job anytime soon. That, that is true. <laughs> but what I'm pretty sure will be happening is what you say that where we see texts will expand. So someone of my generation grew up seeing texts only on printed surfaces or maybe on buildings. Mm. And now I can see surf uh, texts that are presented on all sorts of glass surfaces of different formats and so on. And I'm not really interacting with texts that are you know, floating in midair or are projected on my glasses yet. Uh, but there are quite a lot of applications that are trying to get this to be accepted, maybe for specific applications, maybe in specific work environments or maybe in sports environments and so on. So where, where people already wear goggles, you might see some augmented reality, uh, rich content projected there. And there is no reason why what we see in expensive cars right now, where there is something projected in front of the driver, not expanding, not just to our cars, but in a lot of environments of interaction where some sort of text floats in front of us. Uh, I think that we will see in the next 10 years uh, growing very much. Again, then you're thinking, what is the right density of text? How much text do I really want to see floating in front of me? Hmm. Uh, do I just want a notification on a little icon that I can somehow interact with? Do I interact with touch or gestures and so on? Uh, and of course, how do I get anything that's a bit more complex on? Because we know by now that we can use symbolic interactions for very simple things. Yes, no, go, proceed, slow we cannot really use symbols for more complex things. Even if I think of something as how to boil an egg, mm. that actually is impossible to really uh, convey efficiently and safely without using text. So there will always be text and I think a growing amount of text, but in a much more diverse range of interactions. So on. Yeah. We're going to see a huge amount of automation. So there is a lot of design that happens already uh, automatically by fairly smart, narrow artificial intelligence. You know, my Amazon page is doesn't exist until I call it up. In the same sense, you can imagine a lot of texts being written by fairly smart uh, bits of narrow artificial intelligence might just do manuals or instructions. Uh, but I think we will never be out of the need of human editorship or oversight, because then you have issues of authority and ownership that come into play. So if I am a bank and I'm giving you an automatically generated text for how to use your mobile app, I really need to have a human check it mm. because uh, then I need to make sure that the, the responsibility, the legal responsibility for the correctness of the text is carried out. So what we might see is people moving perhaps from authoring uh, roles to more oversight roles and editorial roles, yeah. uh, rather than to the, in a sense, at the higher level. And I think that happens with a lot of, of the digital documents that we see. So yeah. the designers, are at the higher level, essentially they have the authority for things working a certain way rather than typesetting each individual line. Yeah. Manually. Have a lot of your postgraduate students, are a lot of them interested in the future of typography or are they more interested in the past? Is it a, is it a mix? I think a lot of them come into studies 
driven by an interest in the future and then as they do their research and even at their master's level then they get an appreciation of how a good understanding of the past can help us understand better what is happening now the limitations of why things are happening a certain way and perhaps give us some good lessons for how to do things in the future uh, one of the most interesting uh, lessons that we learn is that a lot of conventions survive across generations of technology. Now, any writer sits in front of a keyboard that has QWERTY in front of it, which uh, is a layout that has its roots in the 19th century, first generations of typewriters. Now, there are no technical reasons why we would use that particular arrangement, and there's a lot of conversation about whether it's efficient or not. What is interesting is that we as people who type are actually quite bad at breaking our habits. Yeah. So then we can see that the next version of a keyboard might also use QWERTY. Now, I can understand maybe the logic of my laptop having a QWERTY keyboard because in format and size it is similar to a typewriter. And I say this as someone who remembers typewriters intimately. But there is no reason for my mobile phone to have a keyboard at that arrangement because the interaction is completely different and the proportions and dimensions are very different. Mm -hmm. But again, we see that the inertia of habit uh, makes very difficult some change. We see that an understanding of why things are the way they are through understanding of the historical background helps us perhaps understand what is possible to do in the future what might be realistic, what might actually need more attention, more explaining to people for the rationale for it and so on. Yeah, true. My research also led me to discover that Jerry was a founding member of the Conference on Typography and Visual Communication. I'd never heard of this conference, so I wanted to know more. Uh, it's a conference that's been running for 20 years. It runs every three years uh, with uh, incredible luck and timing. The last one was just before COVID. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, when we were all able to meet in person and the conference sort of has it, uh, its off period during the intervening uh, two and a half, three years. So it might be the most uh, lucky timing in the history of event planning. Uh, it is a, a conference that brings together historians, linguists, uh, information designers, researchers in the history of printing, all under one roof. It is interesting because it's truly interdisciplinary right, uh, and yeah. allows people to see how what they're working on uh, is relevant to other professionals. So it is always a ex very exciting environment to be in. Do you think that technical communicators would benefit from going? Do you think there's a place for them there? I think it is really healthy for any professional to expose themselves to professionals from related fields. Yeah. Uh, to avoid becoming a monoculture in mm. our ideas about our discipline, uh, especially if we can come into contact with people who maybe use our output or are part of the chain of. Uh, of making that we are. So I might be arranging a document that maybe you have authored. Well, how do we make use of the same kind of resources? I think that is very healthy to mm -hmm. do. It opens up our understanding of our discipline and it helps us also see how our field might be changing. 
to bring it back to my own field, I think typography is relatively good in this because it is by nature interdisciplinary. It has to do with language, it has to do with technology, it has to do with design. Uh, good typographers tend to be good communicators and problem solvers. Mm -hmm. uh, so they tend to have this ability to understand different disciplines. Uh, but I say this recognizing that they're probably the exception rather than the rule in a lot of environments in higher education. Yeah, I agree. I would agree with that. That's fantastic. Imogen, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to our fascinating chat. I would like to thank Jerry for his time and patience in answering my many questions. If you have any further questions, do not hesitate to contact me at istc at istc.org.uk. And now for some news. Next month, Megacom 2022 will take place from the 8th of February to the 10th. It will run 9am to 3pm each day. For more information, see www.megacom.org or write to info at megacom.org. Also, the ISTC Meets webinar will be taking place on February the 9th at 1pm till 2pm. The subject is Creating Content in Disruptive Times and the presenter is Anu Singh. To stay up to date with ISTC Meets events, please follow our Eventbrite account at istc.org.uk slash events. Don't forget to get your ISTC memberships renewed if you have not already done so. And please note we always welcome new members, so spread the word. Join us next month on the 25th of February where I will be bringing you another exciting episode. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe and share. You can find out more about the ISTC at istc.org.uk or just search ISTC on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Thank you. See you next month.